This is the EWN Podcast Network. Welcome to Change, Redefining Success, the podcast designed to inspire you and give you actionable information to enhance, up-level, reimagine, and reinvent your life and your livelihood. No matter where you started, where you are now, or where you've been, you too can lead an authentic, first-class life. Each week, new stories of turning points and transformation will help you define what success means to you so you can live your best life on your terms. Now here's your host, first-class life mentor and certified profiting from your passions coach, Kate Fessler. Welcome to Change, Redefining Success. I'm your host, Kate Fessler, and today my guest is Eleanor Angelitas. Eleanor is the founder and board president of the Open Hearts Big Dreams Fund, which is focused on increasing educational opportunities, including literacy, tech, and art for kids in Ethiopia. Eleanor is also on the advisory board of You Code Girl, a not-for-profit focused on increasing the number of women in tech, and is a multi-year judge of Inspiring 50 which chooses the 50 most inspiring women in tech in Europe. As a 10 plus year employee of Amazon, she has been part of the recent period of growth. Eleanor is currently serving as Director Kindle Content Risk Management and was Amazon's first Global Director of Diversity. Previously, she had business, product and legal roles for Amazon in Seattle, Luxembourg and Paris and is passionate about bringing change and forward momentum. Prior to Amazon, she received her legal start at the Chicago firm of Baker & McKenzie, then went on to manage complex litigation, including regulatory and government matters, public relations and crisis management, as well as, as supported strategic sourcing for Sears in Chicago, Illinois. At home, Eleanor has a partner of 20 plus years and three children, ranging in age from college to elementary school, plus a dog and a parrot. As a volunteer, Eleanor has held board and fundraising positions with the not-for-profits WACAP and Ethiopia Reads. Eleanor is also a published writer on blogs, Ethiopian Ties and Balancing Career Family, and online magazines, Working Mother, Adoptive Families, In Culture Parent, and Women's Essence. She also published her first children's book, The Loud Prince, with colorful, diverse characters through Kindle Direct Publishing. Eleanor has built teams across a variety of disciplines, including tech, companies, and countries, which gives her a uniquely broad perspective to share. Welcome, Eleanor. Well, thank you, Kate. I appreciate that lovely introduction. Let's go back to the beginning of your career. You went to law school and started out with the enormous firm of Baker & McKenzie in their Chicago office. What was your vision then of what success meant to you? I think at that point, I was in my later 20s, and I really thought success was having a career where I did something that people respected, and I had a salary where I didn't have to worry about money. It was pretty much those two things. Mm-hmm. How long were you at the firm before you went to work for Sears, and how did that transition come about? Well, I actually started working for Baker after my second year of law school, which was a great way to really understand more about the law while I was still going to school. So I ended up working my second and third year of law school at Baker uh, and then spending three years in their litigation group. And at the end of the, I think my second year, I had my first son, uh, and it was a really interesting challenge to continue to work at a big law 
law firm with billable hours and a very demanding schedule and balance an infant. Uh, and there was an opportunity to go in-house and have a slightly more predictable schedule, although the work was probably equally hard. So I thought at least worth taking a look, and I ended up getting the job and then deciding those opportunities don't come along very often. So with the blessing of all the wonderful partners at Baker, I made the transition in-house as a uh, fourth-year lawyer. And Sears was a client of the firm? It was not, actually. I had made friends with and networked with someone who was recruiting on behalf of Sears. And mm. Sears at that time was looking for a very interesting profile of a certain type of law school and a certain type of law firm. And there was only a small pool of applicants who could meet that criteria. So I was one of those who probably on the outside of that criteria, since I didn't have a lot of years of experience, but thought it was worth putting me in the mix for the roles that Sears had available at the time, which was managing their complex litigation. Mm. You left Sears, I think, right about the time of the Kmart merger. Is that right? I did. I was at Sears for seven years, and I managed to have a variety of roles while there and transitioned from being a litigator to doing strategic sourcing for some of the biggest then Sears brands, and then ended my career at, Amazon, at Sears so hard, having worked at, at other companies since, to still remember back that far, uh, working <laughs> for their home services business. But yes, it was an interesting transition because I was laid off, um, as were lots and lots of my colleagues. So I found myself at this very interesting career juncture of having had all this great experience, but you know, waking up one day and finding out your job had been eliminated. Mm. It's been so sad, really, to see one of the iconic American brands sink so low. I mean, even the Sears Tower in Chicago has been renamed. Could you tell that I the know. company was going in this direction back then? I think you could, and some of it's with the benefit of hindsight, but there was never a clear vision for the company when I was there that I could discern. We had different CEOs, different strategic priorities. There was a sense of urgency, but not necessarily a sense of purpose. And you definitely felt like there were people who had been there for decades who had, you know, quit on the job or, or were waiting to retire. And it was really disheartening for those of us who saw a lot of potential still in the company and what it was. And like you said, I grew up with Sears. So it was definitely a part of my entire life up until that point. And, and sort of watching since has also been obviously a disappointing experience because of what could have been and then what is. Mm -hmm. You went to Amazon, right, after Sears, and you've been with Amazon for over 10 years which has been a period of tremendous growth, not only for the company, but for you as well. You've been able to live in different countries and move from a legal role into a business role and help the company wrap its head around the diversity challenge. Professionally, what do you consider your biggest success or most rewarding experience? 
That's a really hard one because I think one of the unique things about Amazon is the ability to have a self-directed career. Um, and I certainly took full advantage of it. As you mentioned, I have had roles in Luxembourg and France as well as Seattle. But I think probably my biggest accomplishment was really understanding the value of learning and the value of being really open to different perspectives. Because having worked in different cultures and in different parts of this company as well as other companies, you really start to understand that if you want to do your best work, you need to find people who think different than you, who will challenge you, who will help you see the world or your problem from a different perspective. So having managed legal teams, HR teams, recruiting teams, technical teams, product teams, each one of those disciplines and perspectives is very valuable to problem solving, but when you put them together, it's really even more powerful. So I would say that ability to now leverage cross-culturally across the globe and then help people learn how to do that without following my, you know, what I kindly refer to as a nonlinear career path. But how mm -hmm. do you get people to see that value without having the lived experience that I had, which is obviously pretty unusual. Mm -hmm. You're also involved with a lot of organizations involving women in technology. Is it getting better out there for women in STEM professions? I think it is. I think there's still a long way to go. Uh, and it's interesting for me to look at the 20 years of my career and see the lack of progress for women, technical or otherwise, and other underrepresented groups, which is part of the reason I started becoming much more aware and much more involved in both efforts around diversity and women in technology, given how powerful technology is to solve the problems of the future. But I do see a lot more energy, and I do see girls, even my daughter's age, really embracing being good at math and being smart and sort of thinking through how they might want to build a career based on that. But I think the the challenge will remain for a long time, if and a lot of effort will need to go into where it's something we feel like is solved. I think it's really interesting how a lot of the sort of beliefs and, and customary uh, career paths for girls have kind of been upended. And you don't realize it until it's pointed out that, oh, yeah, I remember when someone told me girls aren't good at math or girls don't do that or you know I and especially the oh guys don't like smart girls <laughs> and all of those things you know you don't realize it until you look back at it that has a huge effect on how girls and women view themselves I agree. I Looking back, because I think my perspective going through my career was I was part of a graduating class that was pretty gender balanced at a top law school. Um, I went to a law firm where I was one of three women in a 60-person litigation department. And I really viewed that as an interesting challenge and opportunity, not as something particularly bad and didn't ask myself a lot of those hard questions there. But you're right in looking back at, you know, there's a little of the death by a thousand cuts. I do remember 
showing up at depositions and without fail being asked if I was the court reporter. I didn't have the gear. I had no idea how to even do stenography. But it, I literally got to the point where I introduced myself. My name is Eleanor Angelitas, and I represent whoever I represented, and I'm not the court reporter. Um, <laughs> and I didn't think very much of it at the time, but there's a weight to that. None of my male colleagues had to like add that to their introduction. Um, and in looking back, you realize there were there's just things that if you're one of an underrepresented group and women often are in different in different professions and I certainly find as becoming a senior woman it's more common for me to be the you know minority group in a meeting as a more senior woman because you know which is true I think for all companies you know mid career there's just a huge drop off of women in the workforce so it's interesting as you pay attention to it the more that you see and the more you realize that it, it has been there all along but you have to choose to see it mhm personally you've started your own nonprofit open hearts big dreams which focuses on educating kids in Ethiopia how did that come about well that's an interesting one i started with having a very strong intuition that I was supposed to have three children. Uh, my husband had no such strong intuition that we were supposed <laughs> to have three children. Um, he was quite sure that two was the magic number. Um, and I also believed that adoption was the route to our third child. So um, fast forward a few years, we ended up with a, a an infant um, from Ethiopia, which we knew very little about, um, embarrassingly. Um, and as she became a toddler, we really were looking for ways to both contribute um, in her home country and culture and also connect her back to what were her rightful roots. Um, and we started by, you know, what a lot of people do is we started donating some money and then we started volunteering. And then over time, we did some major fundraising for an organization called Ethiopia Reads. And through the course of that, we identified some really interesting opportunities to make a much larger impact, but there wasn't an NGO or an organization set up to do that. So one of the things we're focused on right now, which has has the possibility, if we're successful, to have a huge impact on the literacy rate in Ethiopia, is we are creating and printing and distributing early language practice books in English and three of the main Ethiopian languages because kids there, half of them never learn to read and the other half who have the opportunity to learn to read often are having to learn to read without books. So I took a lot of the skills and the learnings from working at various companies and, and organizations and obviously sitting in Kindle Direct Publishing is rather fortuitous for this particular project. So uh, it's combining both, you know, family passions and passions for creating opportunity and, you know, some of the best practices and learnings that I have gained from my professional pursuits. I agree that reading, you know, to, to borrow a phrase from a long ago campaign, reading is fundamental. And... You know, reading is a window on the world. And if you can't read, it certainly does limit your opportunities. So I think that's a wonderful thing that you're doing. And how is your daughter doing? She's a, a lovely young woman now, I believe. 
She is coming up on 10, and you can pick whatever age you want for her maturity. Um, having older brothers and I think grow, spending a lot of time with adults, um, she has a view of her power, and she loves books like So You Want to Be President. So if you know someone doesn't do it before she gets there, um, she would like to be the first woman president, although her brothers are quick to remind her she wasn't born here, so she she may not qualify unless the rules change. And oh. her retort to them, which I loved, was, if I can't be the president of the U.S., well, then I will just be the president of Ethiopia. So she was undeterred. <laughs> She's going to find her leadership position somewhere. Good for her. So how hard is it to navigate the nonprofit world to, to, I guess, first set it up and then was it difficult to find people to work with in Ethiopia? How did you figure out where you were going to focus your efforts there? That's a great question because I think the not-for-profit world is both the same and very different than the for-profit world. So a few things I identified from having volunteered is one, I love the heart and the value system and the social impact that not-for-profit exude that's, you know, in their DNA. What I didn't like about a lot of not-for-profits is, you know, less discipline, less use of metrics, less use of technology, less of the traditional tools that the for-profit world uses to be successful. So when we set up our not-for-profit, we really focused on where we had contacts and skills and there were gaps. So focused on the U.S. side of things, because as I mentioned earlier, Ethiopia is only something we know through our daughter. We've been back, we study it, but I cannot say I'm any sort of expert. And there's NGOs and organizations doing wonderful work there, but they need the support for some of the things that can only be done on the North American or outside of Ethiopia perspective. So we really focused on what we we thought we could do well. That was a game changer. And then I found it interesting, the recruiting really came around people who really like the NGO mission, but not the NGO model. Um, so part of our experiment here is can we take the best of the mission and, you know, evolve the model? So we brought on people who were interested in that challenge. And that has been amazing because I think as we figure out more of the projects and the kind of work that we do, the more people come on board. I had a conversation with one of the, um, our engineering leaders here who also happens to be Ethiopian about, you know, how do we get illustrators and writers in Ethiopia creating the books for us? And he was going to put together a proposal. And you find that when you have something that creates that energy and that emotion, people want to be a part of it. So our challenge is too many people want to help and we have too many ideas. So we're really trying to figure out what do we do first and how do we make sure that we can guide the projects we have to successful conclusions before we take on more. Hmm. I bet negotiation is a big part of getting all this done. I'm a firm believer that every human interaction is a negotiation, unless you are fully aligned from the moment you started talking to someone. So yes, I feel like there's a view of negotiation that it's this win or lose, you know, there's a conflict element to it and that it's really hard and you have to be sort of mean and difficult to be successful where I actually believe all the opposite is true. But I do see negotiation in every 
role that I have and in every professional role I've had, I felt like whether or not I needed to formally negotiate because it was a, you know, a settlement agreement or we were negotiating a giant contract or supplier agreement to um, I need to negotiate who's going to do the housework or I negotiate with my teenagers, which are, I would tell you, some of the most challenging negotiations you will have um, to you negotiate in on behalf of you know my not profit for profit with volunteers on what they can do and what they can't do it, it sort of runs the spectrum for me well we've got to take a short break but when we come back value-based negotiating to to arrive at win-win solutions Do you feel like you're drowning in administrivia? Do you have a podcast you would like transcribed to repurpose as a blog or even a best-selling book? Rhonda's Virtual Office is the answer to the freedom you crave so you can get busy doing what you love. Let Rhonda's Virtual Office give you the relief you need. Visit rondasvirtualoffice.com and get some peace of mind today. Rhonda's Virtual Office is the go-to transcription service for EWN Podcast Network. Thanks for joining us. Back now with your host, Kate Fessler. Welcome back. You are listening to Change, Redefining Success. I'm your host, Kate Fessler, and my guest today is Eleanor Angelides. Eleanor, you're a lawyer by training, so presumably you learned how to negotiate as part of that education. How did what you learned in school and at the law firm prepare you for the business world? That's a great question because I find... Law school didn't really prepare me for practicing law, which is an interesting one. I think most people assume it does. I thought what law school did was really prepare you for a problem-solving framework, a way to think about things and a way to approach things, which was hugely valuable, but it wasn't, and now this is how you do your job. And then I found for, for from a law firm perspective, they had very much a sink or swim, throw you in in the deep end mentality to learning. Um, So both, you know, how you manage negotiation versus how you manage being a successful young lawyer. Uh, And I think, interestingly, as challenging as that was, it allowed you to develop a style that was authentic to you and learn as part of doing, which I think is a very effective way to learn. And so for me, like, Part of it was seeing what worked and what didn't, and I'm not someone who enjoys conflict, so I found there's often ways I could get what I needed from an opposing party or a colleague or a client if I understood what they were trying to achieve and I could look for a way that worked mutually. And I didn't understand the framework for that, but it it sort of organically grew out of what I found successful early on and comfortable and authentic to me. As you said, we're always negotiating, whether we know it or not in our lives. Is there a difference in negotiating with your family, as you alluded to earlier, for example, getting everybody on board when you want to move everyone to another country for a job transfer, or are the same skills involved? The interesting part, I would say, is that they're the same skills. I think most people imagine that if you're a master negotiator, you negotiate for the job, somehow those are magically different skills. If you look in a Webster dictionary and look up the definition of negotiation, it it may tell you a common definition is a discussion aimed at an agreement. It's that simple and that complex. So I think depending on your audience, 
you know, negotiations can be hard or difficult, no matter if they're professional or personal. I think what you find particularly challenging um, about children is they're incredibly good negotiators organically. And I listened to a great speaker on NPR whose name escapes me. Unfortunately, I'd be very happy to, to attribute this to, to him. But he talked about why kids are good negotiators. And I felt like this was, when I heard this, I, I found myself nodding and saying, yes, yes, yes. But it's also, I think if you if I walk you through it, you will too. But somewhere along the line as adults, we lose it. Um, and the three things that kids are incredibly good at is one, they are very, very clear on their objective. Very, very clear. What is it that success looks like? So if you take one of my children, it may be not going to sleep or not going to bed or getting to use the car. Like they are fully clear on what it is that success looks like in their negotiation. And often adults, whether they, they mean to or not, they're a little fuzzy on what does success look like. So I found that super interesting. One thing that differs from sort of family to professional. The second one is kids are fully committed to success. And if you've had children or been around children or been a child, um, it's what if I do this and how about this and you promise this to my brother and like at some point they just wear you down. Like maybe not every time, but there are times you're just like, okay, whatever. What did you want again? Yes, yes, it's yours. Um, and the last one, which I think, you know, I mean, most adults don't have that level of commitment to, to their objectives. So I think that's a, that is definitely a difference. And the last one is, and this one I think often adults and in particular introverted or, you know, folks who who find conflict very hard is um, kids you know is an opening position. So if you say no, it's like, okay, but what about this? What about this? What about this? And adults tend to go, oh, they said no. So I find those are really interesting differences um, that we sort of most of the time as kids had a better grasp on what was successful negotiation than we may as adults and as professionals. Mm. In negotiation, no may be an opening position, but in certain instances, no means no, right? <laughs> For sure, for sure. In this environment, there's definitely times where you're not dealing with a negotiation and no should be the end of the story. And, and it's interesting how um, in different contexts, you can apply principles that, that will get you the result you want or can get you a terrible result. So it's a wonderful clarification. And all joking aside, you know, yes, in certain contexts, there should be absolutely no ambiguity and no no negotiating. People should be able to set those boundaries for themselves. Mm. You've worked in a lot of countries, and at Amazon, presumably, you have a pretty diverse team. Is it important to take cultural and societal differences into account when going into a negotiation? That's hugely important, hugely important. And I think I was, I came at this from a lived experience perspective. I'm a child of immigrants, so I'm a first-generation American. My mother was Dutch and immigrated as an adult from the Netherlands. My dad also immigrated, but he was born and spent his formative years in Indonesia, then lived in Australia for a period of time during World War II, lived in Indonesia again, and then came to the United States. So my first experience with cultural differences is my parents are different than each other, and I'm not like either one of them. Um, and in order to navigate, I need to understand what these differences are. Um, so I feel like 
if you don't have a lived experience that is exposed to, to very different perspectives and cultures, it's easy to think your culture is the same as everyone else's or your culture is right. Um, but in my house, there was always arguments about everything, so I didn't have that sort of mental model or framework to start off with. Um, and I found I also married a Greek, and I would tell you the Greeks and the Dutch from a cultural perspective could be anchoring opposite ends of a spectrum. <laughs> so I find in our multi-decade marriage, we still don't agree on much of anything. Um, in fact, my both boys, when they hit the teenage years, were, were very quick to ask, why did you two marry each other? <laughs> you agree on absolutely nothing. Um, what I think we do agree on is something that's less visible. Our values are very similar. Our approaches to things are very different. And that also has been an eye-opener that I I cannot get someone to do something just by presenting it my way. And then I would tell you, having worked abroad, again, having this cultural sensitivity, I would say, from being exposed to different cultures early on and sort of having to navigate them for my own understanding and survival, that when I go to a different country, I definitely go with a learn and be curious mindset of here's how I'm used to doing it. How do you do it here? And I think in a negotiation setting, often if you insult the other party because you don't understand their culture, you will have given some of your negotiation power or your position away without even knowing it. Um, and so it's critically important that you, if you don't know that you learn and you're very open to learning before you sort of try and navigate something that you're completely unfamiliar with. Do you think there's a difference, a sort of a gender-based difference? Because, you know, we see in the news the the president and and all of the posturing that goes on with the world the male the male world leaders and that's their version of negotiating and it is somewhat insulting and it is sort of chest beating and it is you know i'm you know like i can beat you up or whatever it is like the version of the schoolyard my dad can beat up your dad um and and that definitely does not sound like it's values based negotiating is that a testosterone-fueled male difference, or is that a generational difference of how people learned were the best techniques to negotiate? What To what do you attribute that? It's probably a bit of all of those things. It's basically a power-based negotiation style. I have more power, whether that be physical or monetary or positional power, and it only works if that power difference remains. So if I can make you do things because I have power, either positional power or physical power or military power in the case of a global situation, I can force you to do something. Value-based is we're going to do, we're, we're assuming that we have a long-term relationship and that in a situation where you have a choice, you would still choose to go this direction, and that allows for long-term solutions. I think what was really interesting for me, a realization coming from the University of Chicago, is you can force anyone into a bad contract, right? I can have more power than you. I can make you sign something that is, is, that is inequitable, and in theory, I won, right? I won. Mm -hmm. I won a better deal. But in reality, the minute you have a choice, you will breach that agreement because it's not illegal to breach an agreement. It's called an efficient breach. It actually makes more sense for you to no longer 
comply with the agreement and accept the consequences. So I really haven't won. I've just basically delayed my loss, where if we had negotiated an agreement that was equitable and made sense for both of us, we would likely have a long-term successful relationship. So that concept of efficient breach and that you can force someone to do something if you have some sort of power over them, but only so long as you maintain that power, was just a model for me that that I wasn't interested in, in short-term success. And I think some of what you described is very traditional. I get to win today. I may lose down the road. And that's basically a positional power style of negotiation. And it does work in certain situations if you just have a one-and-done interaction and you don't have to have any go ongoing. I would say like countries in the world, I think we have an ongoing relationship as, long, as far as I can tell. And I probably think some value-based negotiation would be, you know, valuable to our world leaders as well. What are some of the biggest mistakes you see people make in negotiations? That's a really good Great question, because I feel like I see a few on a regular basis. One, they don't bother to others understand what the other party wants out of the negotiation. So they just go in with what I, here's what I want, right? And here's why it makes sense for you to give me what I want. And I, I when I did more negotiation training, I, I called that like the bad first date, right? Like, <laughs> The first date that like talks about themselves, tells you how wonderful they are, spends the whole time talking about themselves, and then asks if you want to go out again, and it's a resounding no thank you. Um, so I feel like that's a big mistake of like taking no time to understand what the other you know party or person wants out of the negotiation. What about women in particular? There's an ongoing and increasingly louder movement to have women paid as much as men. And often the reason given is that women don't ask or don't negotiate for more like men do. Why do you think that is and what can we do about it? It's interestingly that there's a soundbite element to that. And I think if you look at, you know, the Stanford has a claimant institute uh, studying gender research, there's a lot of different components to go into that. I don't think it's because women are bad negotiators. I don't. Um, there's a lot of, if you look at like where women were with voting rights and education, there's a lot of catching up to do. There's also a a pretty well-established global, global perspective that leaders look male, right? That our vision, and, and the interesting part is women are equally guilty of having this sort of vision of what a leader looks like. Um, and I think we're much more accepting of certain types of behavior from our male leaders and our female leaders. And negotiation, even if it's value-based, doesn't mean you're a pushover or that you're not making you know demands and others. So I feel like there's probably a number of things that have to happen. One, maybe we don't shouldn't be in the negotiation business at all. So I think there's movements in certain countries to just say like it's the same for these, you know, these different positions. I think there's also historical issues that would need to be addressed. You can't just say women need to negotiate better without recognizing that there are, you know, legacy issues that have been built into our systems that also need to be looked at and addressed. So I don't think it's a 
simple challenge that says women are bad negotiators, they just need to get better. I think there's a there's a complex set of issues that are intertwined in that. But I think there's lots more conversations about that, which I think is great. And I do think you'll see some of, I believe it's the Norwegian countries, like really taking some provocative stances on equal pay that it'll be interesting to see how those play out over, you know, the next few years and whether or not you see other companies, countries, or um institutions sort of moving that direction. We're almost out of time. So I have to ask you, what is one book or resource that changed your life that you would recommend to people? This will seem cliche, but it was the one I got when I first became a manager of a relatively large team with huge responsibilities. And they sent me to a seminar. And part of that was to read The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Um, And that book I use it on my kids. I use it in my professional environment. I feel like if there's just one book you read, because it's research-based and it looks at all these successful leaders across generations and institutions and industries, what are the things that help them be successful? And if it really boils down to some really simple principles about how do you prioritize How do you seek to understand before being understood, which is the negotiation challenge we just talked about, Um, and and that you take care of yourself in the process, right? That a very important piece of it is also like making sure that you're taking care of yourself. So that book, I find like I reread and I recommend and, and it's been decades and I still find it incredibly powerful. But I also find I love books. So I have a like a nice bookshelf on Goodreads that depending on the topic, I might recommend a different book. But if a one that works for everyone, I don't care if you're, you know, a teenager or a grandparent, like this one is the one that I feel is so universal. Can you give some bullet points, some quick takeaways on how to engage in value-based negotiating? Yes, I'd be happy to. I think one, and we talked a little about what kids are good at, I think one, really defining your your version of what success looks like in this discussion aimed at an agreement. So get clear in your own mind what that looks like and what you're trying to achieve. And if you're not sure, that's a great time to actually stop and really dive into that and say, what what am I trying to accomplish here? And I will tell you, having advised groups that were going into huge negotiations, it's actually not at all uncommon to not have really defined what it is that would be success or not success. And I think the next step of that, which is critical, is what is your best alternative to negotiated agreement? The negotiators will call that a BATNA, which is just the acronym for the best you know, alternative to a negotiated agreement. Because if you don't know at what point you would walk away or what you would do if you don't reach agreement, you have a problem because you're not – you will have to – to ultimately accept the other party's terms if you don't have an alternative. So you have to be either prepared to walk away or have a plan B and really think that through ahead of entering into a negotiation. I think then the the third is we really talked about, do you understand the other side's values and interests and what they're trying to achieve? Because how do you match what your version of success is with what they're trying to achieve? And I find one like, Great question. If you get stuck in a negotiation, assuming you know your objective, you have your BATNA, and you 
feel like you understand the other side and now and you're in the negotiation and you've gotten stuck. You can't get them to agree. This is a question and it comes from Scott Works negotiation training and it's really super powerful. You ask the other side, what would it take for you to do what I need you to do? Whatever you define as success, what would it take? They're making no agreement. They're making no promise, but they're just telling you what would it take. And what it gives you very powerfully is, do you have a tiny gap or a huge gap? Because they may say, if you could do it six months from now, I'm, I can do it. And if time was not an issue for you, you're done. If they say, well, I need this other problem to be solved first before I could do this for you, then you understand if you could get that problem solved, then you can see a path forward. So the what would it take question is huge. Um, and, you know, and I find for getting stuck, that's one of the most powerful ways to make sure you get enough information to understand, is there a path forward? Or are you really sort of at an impasse? And maybe you should know the answer to that question yourself going in. What would it take for me to give them what they want, right? Exactly. In fact, what this Scott Works training is, is the way they frame and it's very value-based negotiation is how you view a successful outcome of a negotiation is how do you give them, the other side, what they want on terms you can accept. So it flips the negotiation around of how do you give them what they want? in a way that works for you, right? Rather than how do you get what you want? And it's a really interesting shift in the mental model, but that's exactly right. You should know if they say these are the things I would need, what would it take for you to say yes to that? Because I think that is the, the power is in the overlap of the answer to those two questions. You do some speaking about this and other topics. If people want to contact you or learn more about you or have you come talk to their group or be on a panel of experts, how can they do that? Well, I'm on LinkedIn, so they can always like send me a message there. I find I, I get a lot of interesting contacts and, and ideas, frankly, from people around the world on LinkedIn. Or they're welcome to call, um, to email my my personal email, which please don't judge. It's D-E-N-E-L-L-E-66 at AOL.com, and I am a creature of habit, and yes, I've given a little bit away about like how long I've been on the planet since I have an AOL account, but I'm always happy to hear from people there as well. My husband has an AOL account, I know. It's it's like, now it's the two of you. I thought he was the only one. <laughs> I get judged all the time. My, my teenagers call me a dinosaur. I've just come to live with it. I'm a creature of habit, and I'm a little attached to it because I feel like we've, we've shared a relationship for a lot of years. I can't just, you know, dump them right now that someone cooler came along. So, um, <laughs> yes, I, I, we are the two people on the planet still keeping AOL's doors open. Before we go, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you your thoughts about what's currently in the news about the president coming after Amazon. Well, it's interesting. I'm on Twitter and I'm just fascinated probably like everyone else on what on having a president on Twitter and the things that he focuses on, which sometimes is something like Amazon that I'm familiar with and sometimes not. So I have no like no inside baseball on this one, but I think like everyone else, I'm following along on Twitter to figure out what's happening next from our uh, our Oval Office, which is a totally new experience because that is not where I had come to expect to re receive my presidential news and mandate. So it's a fascinating time we live in, and I think we're all waiting to see what comes next. What's next for Eleanor? 
Well, interesting for me, I have now on the one-year plan of I only know what I do for the next year, and then I'm open to what comes next, which is sort of a sign up for an automatic renewal on a 12-month plan. But I am having a, a blast at in Kindle. I think part of what we do in Kindle Direct Publishing is allow people to find their writing voice and find their audience, which is hugely empowering. And the, the complexity of doing that around the globe with all the different um, challenges you can imagine with language and translation and, you know, storytelling has been like a really interesting one for me. And I have a team that sits all around the world speaking I think we, we're up to 20, 25 languages, so I feel like I have a really good challenge ahead of me for the next year, and we'll see what comes after that. Eleanor Angelitas, thanks so much for sharing your wisdom today. Well, thank you, Kate. It's been a pleasure to be on board, and I, I'm excited to hear back if we get feedback from your audience. Thanks for joining us. This is the EWN Podcast Network. If you've ever been on the receiving end of a power-based negotiation, you definitely know the objective is not a win-win outcome. And if that's how you've been taught to negotiate, I hope you're considering perhaps changing your approach. If you have something to add to the conversation, please leave a comment on my Facebook page, First Class Life Solutions. If you have a great story and would like to share it on this podcast, please click on the link at the bottom of the show page and fill out the survey. If it seems like a good fit, I'll be in touch. Would you please do me a favor and rate this podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to it? Please follow the show so you'll be notified of future episodes and please tell your friends. Next week, we'll be sharing some information about how you can determine what's important to you when making a decision, but also how you can figure out what's important to the other person so you can speak their language for better communication and better outcomes. I hope you'll join me. Until then, cheers to your authentic first-class life. I'm Kate Fessler. Thanks for listening to Change, Redefining Success. This is the EWN Podcast Network. I'm Sandra Yancey, CEO and founder of eWomen Network. We invite you to listen to all of our EWN podcast hosts at ewnpodcastnetwork.com.